And Nehemiah, today is an exciting time because we get to start a new series, and this is specifically on leadership. And this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. This has to be one of my favorite books to talk about. And if you've been with us or maybe serving in ministry now for some time in this church, you've possibly heard me quote from Nehemiah so many times, or maybe even teach through Nehemiah, that you've already noticed that this is such a book that we as a ministry have learned from. I like what the series theme is where it talks about from ruins to restoration. From ruin to restoration. Why? Because Nehemiah here shows up on the scene right after Ezra. And he is not a priest, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not a prophet either. He's a cupbearer. That means that he works in the palace now of King Arxerxes. And he serves as that person that tries the food or drinks now of the cup before they give it over to the king. And Nehemiah is there. But he's a cupbearer with a heart for God. He's a cupbearer with a heart after God. And we're going to see now, I want to just tell you and speak to you in regards to what's going to take place in the book, a small introduction leading into chapter 1 that we'll be talking about today because this book is all about restoration. This book is all about reconstruction. This book is all about rebuilding. And if you're in a season right now where we're rebuilding, we're reconstructing, we're in a season right now where we're restoring something that has been broken down. Whether it's a marriage, whether it's maybe your personal walk with the Lord, whether it's an emotional state that you want to get right back and get a little bit stronger, this is the book that you want to just take your time with and understand what Nehemiah teaches us. Because it was the leadership of one man that led to the revival of an entire nation. It was one man that led to the revival of an entire nation now. Why? Because Nehemiah was bold. Because Nehemiah was faithful. Because Nehemiah was committed. He was disciplined. He was, showed so much strength in his calling. And we learn here in Nehemiah that, that times of crisis require leadership. You know why there's a lot of crisis sometimes? Because of a lack of leadership. Maybe there's a crisis going on in your life or, or in your family or somewhere. It's usually the crisis because of the lack or the absence or the neglect of leadership. Because every now trial or tribulation requires leadership. It requires character. And I pray that, that we would find out through this book of Nehemiah that we are all called to lead. That we're all called to influence. And maybe you would say, well, I'm not a leader. I'm not no influencer, as you would say. But yes, there is a Nehemiah in us. <laughs> there is a reason why God gave us this book so that we can learn. Jerusalem at this time now was still in now captivity of Babylon. And now the king has said, all right, now those Jews that want to go back to Jerusalem, go for it now. Some of them stayed back and decided not to go. But a group of them actually went to now Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was in ruins completely. The temple was broken down. We see that Ezra helped rebuild the temple. The walls had been broken down. Those had not been rebuilt. And the enemy had the Jews in hostage. They had them living in fear. It was a misery now. It was a complete now critical situation. And think about Ezra helped build the temple now, as we saw that the temple was built, but there was no wall surrounding the temple. 
And you know what the walls represent? The walls represent protection. A lot of times we think that walls represent separation, but in fact walls represent protection. <laughs> they don't, the walls are not meant to separate, the walls are meant to protect. And for 90 years, the temple did not have walls around it. Therefore, the temple was now subject or vulnerable for the enemy to come straight in to the temple and rob and hijack the presence of God right there, the ark and the temple and all its belongings. But you know why? Because there was no leadership. Because some of them got stuck in Babylon when they were called to step back into Jerusalem. And I pray that none of us here would be stuck in Babylon, stuck in the world, comfortable in the world, when God has called us back into Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has freed you from the bondage of sin. The Holy Spirit has freed you from the power of sin, from doubt that the enemy has placed in your mind. Now you're called to go back into Jerusalem to rebuild. Don't stay and linger in Babylon any longer. Do not get comfortable there. Rise up and build. And maybe today God's calling you to rise up and build. You as a husband, you as a wife, you as a, as a single young man, as a single young lady to rise up and build from that which has been broken down for such a long time. The walls had been broken down for 90 years of this dangerous time now. It is this time where now the enemy can come in and inflict damage. But restoration begins with the protection. You see, restoration with no protection is no real restoration. You can say, well, we're restoring right now this certain area of my life. But if you're not protecting yourself, then it's not real restoration. Restoration is only real when you have protection. Lord, we want you to restore this place in our family. What are you doing to protect your family then? Lord, we want you to restore this place over here in my devotional walk. Lord, I want you to restore the devotional walk that I have with you. What are you doing to protect the devotional walk then? Lord, I want to go back to the time of prayer. What are you doing to protect that time of prayer? You see, right here we see that Nehemiah in chapter 1, he's able to see now the gravity of the situation, how critical the situation is. But you see one of the things that he does is he recognizes the need. He's not blind to the need. He's not naive to the need. It's so sad how sometimes we can be so naive, so ignorant about the need, that we're never able to meet the need. You see, you want to be able to meet the need, then ask the Lord, Lord, open my eyes to see the need. He recognizes the need. He's awakened, he's open, he sees the reality of how things really are. Sometimes we can ignore the situation the way it is, and that's why the situation never gets better. Oh, we're just ignoring it, we're postponing it, we're procrastinating. We don't really want to think about that because it stresses us out. Now it's anxiety now. I don't want to think about how bad that situation is, so I'm going to pretend that everything is okay. You know what Nehemiah does? He doesn't pretend that everything's okay because he knows everything is not okay. <laughs> and we're going to start rising up and we're going to build. Nehemiah says there's still people that we need to reach. And he's a visionary now. And you see that it's going to happen right here. He's passionate about advancing now the kingdom of God. Are you passionate about advancing? Or are you okay with just being at a standstill for such a long time? Here God is calling us through this book. I'm, I'm so sure that God is calling you to advance. To advance, to progress, to move forward. We need to advance the kingdom of God. We need to be passionate about advancing the kingdom of God. 
about not living in the same place that we were last year, about not staying stuck in Babylon. We need to be highly motivated about doing God's work even when it involves difficult circumstances. You know what's lacking in the kingdom of God in the church today? Motivation. You know why there's no motivation? Because there's also no devotion. Devo motivation is honed in, is grabbed motivation in devotion with the Lord. You see, when you are motivated to advance the kingdom of God, regardless of the difficult circumstances, God will use you. And even Nehemiah here, he faces criticism. He faces opposition. When he starts to build a wall, we're going to see in the later chapters, that they start to laugh at him. Oh, those little Jews, they think that they can build a wall? He starts to criticize him. Oh, you're not doing it the right way. You could be doing a better way. And you always have people in the church like that, or maybe brothers and sisters, that you start trying to do something right for God, and instead of helping you, they start to criticize you. And you and you stand up to rise and build, you have to understand that criticism is going to be something that's going to come as natural, discouragement, and opposition. But if you don't want to be criticized, if you don't want to be criticized, then just don't be a leader. Go be something else. Go sit in the shadows of someone else then. And when God's called you to lead, be ready to face criticism. Be ready to face opposition. Be ready to go through seasons of discouragement as well. Because the enemy wants to attack us when we're building. No matter what you're building, the enemy wants to attack you. In fact, when you say, I'm going to rebuild what was broken down, that's when you should protect yourself more than ever. In fact, when you said, I'm going to now start a revival that the Lord is steering in my heart, that's when you should protect more than ever. Alan Redpath said this, there is no winning without warfare. There is no winning without warfare. There's no opportunity without opposition. There is no victory without vigilance. For where the people of God say, let us rise up and build, Satan says, let me arise and oppose. When the God's people say, let us rise up and build, Satan also says, let me rise up and oppose. There's no victory without warfare. There's no opportunity without opposition. There's no now uh, here victory without vigilance now. Because the enemy is always on the move. But we must be motivated to act on one thing, the word of God. Because even in chapter 1, Nehemiah starts to pray now scripture. He starts to pray scripture. Have you ever prayed scripture? Where you start to now open up your Bible and say, Lord, you said this. And start to pray scripture out loud. The promises of God, right? Start facing the problems that are taking place in your life. Not postponing anything, but opening up the word of God and knowing that the best leaders are not born, they're made. They're not born. A lot of people think, well, I'm just born to lead. No, yeah, you might be born with that calling, but you weren't born a leader. You have to be made a leader, and that happens as you're in devotion with the Lord. The best leaders that are ever made are those that are servants, serving in the ministry of prayer, serving in the ministry of God's Word. They're not born, they're made, they're built to the best leaders. And the purpose of this book is to equip you so that you have no excuses on why we're lousy. <laughs> so you have no excuses why we're lazy. <laughs> That we can really be and build into the kind of leader that God wants you to be. Not the kind of leader that you are today. The kind of leader that God wants you to be. 
Not satisfied where we are, but looking where we should be. That's always a visionary leader. Not satisfied where we are, but looking at where we should be. And I'll tell you, because Nehemiah is flexible in his leadership, he goes from being cupbearer to being wall builder <laughs> to being the governor at the end of the chapter. Are you flexible today? A lot of people want to lead, but they don't want to be flexible. If you want to be a leader at your house, then you have to be flexible at your house. If you want to be a leader at work, you have to be flexible at work. You want to be a leader at church amongst the brothers and sisters, then you have to be flexible at church. God's not going to move you from cupbearer to wall builder if you're not flexible. If you're saying, this is my schedule, this is my time, this is all I do, I'm not going to take feedback, this is the way I do it, I'm already doing it this way, that's not flexibility. Blessed are the flexible. Those are the ones that are going to be used. You see, I love what Harry Truman says, a president of the United States in history. He says, leaders are people who can get others to do what they don't want to do and get them to enjoy it. Leaders are those that get other people to do what they don't want to do and then get them to enjoy doing that. That's influence right there. And you're going to see that here Nehemiah does that. From chapters 1 through 6, it talks about the reconstruction of the wall. And from chapters 7 to 13, it talks about the reinstruction of the people of God. Reconstruct the wall and reinstruct them. And Ezra, he comes with the word at the end of Nehemiah. Let's go again with the word. The word in the beginning, the work in the middle, and the word at the end. That's the way it works. The word in the beginning, the work in the middle, and the word at the end. That's the way we're going to see it play out. Because that every great work of God is founded on the word of God. And is always a build on the word of God. And we're going to see that here in Nehemiah. Here is a cupbearer with the heart for God. Let's pray. Lord, ask, Lord, we ask, Lord, today that you would use Nehemiah. Use Nehemiah to challenge us today, Lord. Use Nehemiah, Lord, because we don't want to be leaders, God, that are settled with the victories of yesterday. We don't want to be catching up to yesterday, Lord. We want to rebuild the walls. And we want the ultimate goal right now, today, in our lives, the ultimate goal that it would be of restoration. That the ultimate goal would be of reconstruction. That the ultimate goal would be of rebuilding and doing it the right way, Lord. But give us a heart. Give us a burden that cares. Give us godly ambition that we want, would want to advance your kingdom, Lord. Motivate us to move into action. In Jesus' name, amen. It says here in Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, we see that he is the author the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with the men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. It gives us a specific time, and it gives us a specific place now, Nehemiah here. In verse 2, it says that Hanani, his brother, came to visit him from Jerusalem. And as Hanani, his brother, came to visit him at Jerusalem, Nehemiah here does one thing, and this is what he does in verse 2. He says, and I asked. If you like taking notes, I would really highly encourage you to underline, and I asked. Because that's what leaders do. They ask about the situation. 
You know why a lot of times, you, sometimes people don't get anything done? Because they don't ask about what needs to get done. <laughs> you guys never asked me <laughs> to do anything. Well, why don't you make yourself available? <laughs> you want to lead? Then ask, what are the needs? What's the state? Is everything okay? How can I make myself available? Ask. You see, number one, he asked because he cared. When you care, you will ask. When you care about someone, you will ask them how they're doing. When you care about a situation, you're going to ask because you really now are concerned about the situation. And you see here that there is a genuine concern or a genuine interest for, here verse 2 it says, concerning the Jews who escaped and, here, and who had survived the captivity. Number one, a genuine interest for people. Number one, a genuine interest for people. Remember this, a genuine interest for people. And number two, a genuine interest for places, Jerusalem. Do you have a genuine interest for people? And do you have a genuine interest for this place? You know, that's so amazing when you get someone that has a genuine interest for people. We have a genuine interest for the people here at Alive Christian Fellowship. And then we have a genuine interest for here, this place that God has called us. We have an interest for, to make sure that the needs of this place are being upkept. A genuine interest. That's a leader. That's what a leader does. It's blessed me recently that without people knowing or it having to be announced, people have come forward, men now, and that want to be leaders, and said, I want to spend my entire morning on Saturdays at church cleaning and making sure that this place is ready for Sunday without having to be asked, because they first asked, are there needs? I want to make myself available. That's, that, that, that's a leader in the making. Those are leaders in the making that are concerned, that are thinking about this, that have a larger worldview than just themselves. You will never get anything done if your worldview is just you. It's just A and that's it. I'm never going to think about B. No, here he's thinking about others outside of his own circle. He's concerned about their not only physical state, but he's also concerned about their spiritual condition. He's 800 miles away. Think about this. He is 800 miles away, but he still cared. It didn't matter about the distance. 800 miles away, it was heavy on his heart, and he still cared. Here, notice this. He's going to ask. Tell me how it really is. Don't sugarcoat it for me. Tell me. Because his heart is set on the things of God. And when your heart is set on the things of God, you're going to care about people. And when your heart's set on the things of God, you're going to care about His place, Jerusalem. Do you care about His house? Do you care about His people? When you have an interest for God, you're going to care about those two things, people and places. This is what Nehemiah is concerned about. And it says here now, look what happens. Because they tell him now. He's concerned about these people, their condition. How are they? He cares. He wants to ask. But in verse here, 3, it says here, and they said to me, The survivors who are left from captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. Bad news. It's not good news. It's bad. <laughs> we're not going to say, oh, we're doing good. The worst thing is when people ask you something, Hey, how are you doing? How you been? Well, I've been good. But you know you haven't been good. <laughs> you know, we need to be able to be honest about the situation before it ever gets better. <laughs> if you're not honest about the situation, the situation is never going to get better. Hananiah here, his brother, tells him the situation is bad. It's not good. 
And in fact, he tells them like this. He's so honest. He says, the survivors who are left from captivity in province, they're in great distress and they're in reproach. And the walls, look at the walls of Jerusalem are also broken down and the gates are burned with fire. This is horrible. Jerusalem has no walls. The gates are burned with fire. You think about a city without walls that shows weakness. That shows weakness, a city with no walls. A family with no walls shows weakness. A spiritual life without walls shows weakness. You know why? Because the enemy knows that there's no walls. He can go straight right in and go in and attack. And I think sometimes we're scared. We're scared when we think about walls. The only walls that you should break down are the ones that are in your heart taking you away from spending time with God. And then you should build some so that it can fortify and you can have a stronghold in the Jerusalem of your heart and of your life because you need to have those balls strengthened. But it says that Hananiah said the survivors, understand here there's the survivors, we're going to really dissect this. this is, I don't even, if we don't finish chapter 1, it's okay. But it says here the survivors remaining. You see, the word survivor is not a word that is a hopeful title. It's not something you're proud about when you say they're surviving. <laughs> that sounds like a bad situation. Oh man, they're over there and whatever the little that remains over there, they're just surviving. That's not a hopeful title. God hasn't called you to live as a survivor. He's called you to live in Romans 8 like a more than conqueror. <laughs> Amen? And I think sometimes we're saying, I'm okay as long as I'm surviving. That's not the state that God called you to live in. Uh, survivor, survival mode. Jesus didn't go to the cross and then come out of the grave so that you can live on survival mode. <laughs> so you can be barely making it spiritual. No, he, called, he rose from the dead and that same spirit lives in you so that you can live with the more than conquerors title. You can live that way, not just surviving. But it says here, those survivors are in great distress. They're in reproach. And that's sometimes an illustration of how our life is. You know, you see, great distress and reproach means they're in pain. They're in suffering. They're in misery. They're in calamity. The situation is critical. It's not, there's not, you know what, we're kind of good. We have our struggles. No, you know what? You know what the problem is? The problem is no protection. That's why we're there. You sometimes ask yourself, you know, my, my marriage, my family, my personal walk, our, 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 our nation, you name it. You know what the problem is? The problem is the protection. Are you building the correct protection, the cor correct foundation? And you know why sometimes the walls are torn down? Because of neglect of, of keeping the walls. Because of neglect of building the walls of safety. Because of the neglect of making sure that those walls that God has put there, instituted there to protect Jerusalem, are set up every single day to protect Jerusalem. You know what, you know what Jerusalem is though? What was housed in the temple in Jerusalem? What was housed in the temple of Jerusalem that they had to protect? The ark, the presence of God. Are you protecting the presence of God? It's so important to protect. And it says, the walls of Jerusalem, they're broken down and the gates are burned with fire. You can't keep the enemy out if the walls are not set up. You can't keep the enemy out. That's disaster. That's a recipe 
for disaster. You're living without walls of safety. You're open to the attacks of the enemy. Guess what you're also open up to? You're open to invasion. What happens when the enemy invades a country? And the enemy comes and tries to take over a country because they don't have protection. It takes over, no matter what you say. It doesn't matter how you threaten them. If you didn't have those walls of protection, the enemy is coming in and they're protecting. And they're coming in, they're invading, and they're gonna go ahead and destroy and take over. You see, these walls also having, not having them represented vulnerability. It represented weaknesses that they were simply giving in to the situation. They were okay with the situation. Nobody wanted to rebuild. You know, but could this be an illustration of how we are that we're oppressed by the enemy? And instead of like Ephesians 6 says, to resist the enemy, we're retreating from the enemy, we're running away from the enemy. Instead of resisting the enemy and fighting the enemy, we're running away. We should never be okay with living with broken down walls. Never be okay with living with broken down walls. Because it's when the walls are broken down that you should fear for your life. You should fear for your life. Because there's no more protection. You see? And it happens because of neglect, little by little. You know, the weeds start to grow up and they start to grow in through those walls now. And little by little now, the enemy gains free access to be able to go into the Jerusalem of your heart and of your life. But what about the walls of passionate devotion today? How do they look? What about the walls of prayer? Have you set up walls of prayer? Where, Lord, this morning I'm praying right now a wall of prayer across my house and across my family. I'm praying walls of prayer across the ministry of our church. How do those walls look? When we come to prayer meeting, we're building walls surrounding this ministry. You see, when we're praying now, when we're devoted, what about the walls of your testimony now? How do those walls look? Does your testimony look like it's half done, that there's bricks laying all over the place? How does the walls of your witness look? How does the commitment to the wall look? Uh, you know, a few years back, I'll never forget that I met a wall builder at work. And I asked him, this man that was rugged with his boots and all dirty and callous in his hands, I'll tell you, just shaking his hand, it felt like this man, if you ever learn to work with cement or anything like this, you know it's hard work. And I, I asked him, and I dared to ask him, and he said, I asked him, what does he do? He said, I build walls. And I asked him, usually how long does it take you, or how long do you work, or, or what's the strategy behind you when you start a wall and you finish the wall? He says, I, I start the wall, and I don't stop working until the wall is done. Now, what a lesson. What a lesson. Because that's commitment to the wall. You see, we have to learn to repair the walls that for a long time have been broken down. And I'll be, I'll be even as bold enough to say that there are some walls in this room today that are broken down that need to start getting rebuilt. There are some walls of devotion. There are some walls of a personal and spiritual leadership that are broken down that need to get built up. And if those walls don't go up, the enemy is going to be more prone to come and attack and rip you off of the presence of God that is there. I mean, it, it's so true. It, it, these walls were intended to protect the nation. They were intended to protect. This is a biblical now principle. This is not a political thing. This is a biblical principle. It says it in the Bible. And look what it says in verse 4 now. So it was when they heard these, when he heard these words, Nehemiah, when I heard these words, that I sat down. He couldn't even stay standing. <laughs> he had to sit down because he was going to cry about this situation. That's how much he cared. 
He didn't say, you know what, it's, the situation is bad. And you know, he didn't go out and he didn't just say, you know what, oh man, I'll, I'll pray for them. Oh man, this is something, this is, oh, what, what a shame. When you hear about the situation that there is no walls protecting your church, there's no walls protecting your life, there's no walls protecting the state of maybe your ministry or the state of maybe your spiritual walk, what does it cause you to do? Or, or are we okay? You know what? Just let anyone in my life. Let's just let anyone into the ministry. Just let anyone interrupt my prayer time with the Lord. No, they're there to keep, walls are not only there to protect you, they're also to keep people out that are not supposed to be in. It's so true. That's what they're there for. And that's exactly why the walls of Jerusalem needed to be built. But look what he does here in this verse 4. When he heard these words, he sat down, he started to cry and warn for many days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. What does he do? He sits down, and he does what every godly man and woman should do when they understand. He, number one, he's not impulsive, and he's not emotional. He doesn't say, oh no, my brother, the walls are broken down, the gates are burning with fire, I'm out of here. Let me try to fix it right now. <laughs> That's what we do sometimes. We know a situation is bad. Let me fix it right now. Let me start to maneuver things because I know. It's what I say. It's not what you say. It's not what you say. It's not what you think. It's what God says. It's what God thinks. You're not the authority. God is the authority. And sometimes as, as head of households, we start to think that we are so much of big and bad authorities. I'll tell it to all the men right here. You're not even the provider. God's the provider. And if He so chooses, He's called you to, to lead through your hands and through your hard work. But it says here now in verse 4 that He was an impulsive, that He was not emotional to fix a situation. He learned, we learn here what it means to be still. Be still doesn't only mean do nothing. <laughs> be still means to wait. That's what be still means. It doesn't mean do nothing. It means learn to wait. Be still means to learn to wait, but also to invest in the spiritual. He starts to weep and mourn for many days. This situation led to Nehemiah's personal brokenness. How does your personal brokenness look? When you look at this situation, when you look at reality, how does your personal brokenness look? Your personal brokenness has to look somehow when you look at the situation. And if you look at the situation and there's no personal brokenness, it means that maybe your heart is too hard not to break because you don't care. You know, I cared here. And he was called to build, but first, he was to weep for the ruins. You know what the best builders are in ministry and for the Lord are? Are those that first have wept. Lord, we want to build this wall. We want to stay to this wall, committed to this wall. I don't care what comes our way. But we are there at the wall. We're going to stay at the wall because first we have wept for that wall. We've cried for that wall. I said they were so committed to the wall later on in the chapters that they started to get attacks and where the holes of the gaps of the walls were. So now, you know what the, Nehemiah does later on in the, in the book? He says, okay man, get your families and I want you to stand in those gaps. And with one hand, I want you to grab a brick and with the other hand, I want you to grab a sword and you're not even going to have time to change your clothes. Talk about diligence. Talk about not taking time off. With one hand, a brick to build the wall, and with the other hand, with the sword, just in case the enemy comes. And you know why he put their families and their kids right there with them? Because he knew, Nehemiah, that, they, that the old man would not let the enemy come close to their wife and to their children. You want to see a man rise up to leadership, 
make sure it cost him his wife and his kids. Let's see what, what he won't do. Nehemiah was a man that put now his life where his words were at, where his heart was at. He was not talk. He started to weep for the situation, and then he said he was praying and fasting before the God of heaven. This shows the evidence of humility and dependence. Because the most effective way to seek the voice of God and the will of God is with prayer and with fasting. Lord, the situation is critical. Let me go call a friend. <laughs> Lord, the situation is critical. Let me go ahead and just argue with this person. No, if the situation is bad, pray and fast. Fast to deny your flesh. To wholly seek the Lord. This is amazing when we fast. It's so amazing because we start to tap into spiritual power and resources that we would not all have if we weren't fasting. When you're fasting, you know what it does? You, you are fully now denying yourself and opening yourself up spiritually to something that you would have not had if you were fulfilling the desires of your flesh naturally. The greatest need in every leader is not more training. The greatest lead in every leader is not more opportunity. The greatest lead in every leader, man and woman, husband and wife, the greatest need in leaders is to be equipped through fasting and prayer. Don't give me another conference. Don't give me another retreat. Give us fasting and prayer. See what that won't do. You see what that won't do. Because sometimes we resort to programs. We resort to methods. We want to start funding money quickly. We want to start asking. Go to prayer and fasting. Let's see what that won't do. Because in prayer and fasting is where you have to learn to wait on God. It's where you learn that leadership begins from the knees up. Where you have to bow the knee and pray and wait. You know, and this is awesome because we learn that prayer is primary. Because it gets the job done. Your money's not going to get the job done. Prayer is going to get the job done. And then your resources. It gets the job done before you start any work for God. Prayer. He understands the need. He doesn't postpone. He's not lazy about praying. It's so amazing when you hear people that they see there's a big need, but they, for whatever reason, they don't want to pray. <laughs> they don't want to pray. Nehemiah here learns that this is an entire nation that is broken down, but he learns he has to pray and fast. He's not going to postpone. He's not going to procrastinate the prayer meeting. Right there, he sits down. He doesn't make excuses. And he, or in order to lead, he knows, I, my first, I first must be led myself because I can't take people to a place where I myself have not been. The failure is when you as a leader try to go and lead to a place where you yourself are so inexperienced and where you become an amateur at. You're an amateur in prayer, guess what? You become an amateur in everything else in life because you don't know the presence of God. You see, it's from the brokenhearted. It's from the brokenhearted. I want you to remember this one, please. It's from the brokenhearted that emerges the gift of leadership. The brokenhearted. You know why? Because they learn how to pray. They learn what it means to be broken. I pray that today you would refuse to remain unbroken. You say, Lord, I don't want to be unbroken. I want to be broken at the need. I don't want to stay unbroken. I don't want my convictions to be weak. I, I don't want them to be watered down. Lord, broken, when I'm broken, you know what that also means? It means three things. I'm available, number one. I'm ready, number two. And number three, I'm willing. Don't ever say you're broken and then you're not available. When someone's broken, you know, I'm broken. The Lord broke me. You know, but he didn't break my schedule, so I still can't go to church. 
Now, the Lord broke me, except He didn't break my wallet, so I still can't give to God. When you're broken, you're available. Um, that's real brokenness. I've seen people that the Lord broke, they stopped everything. They put everything at a standstill, and they became available 100% because they were broken. You're broken, you're going to be available. You, uh, you will see that person at church more than anyone. You will see that person at church. Doesn't matter how many times they meet, they'll be there. If they're broken, they'll be there. Number two, they're ready. And number three, they're willing. You see? Because that happens when someone's broken and starts to pray and it softens the hardness of the heart. It softens the hardness of the heart. You become usable. You become teachable. If you're not usable and teachable, then guess what? You can't lead anyone. Make yourself usable. Make yourself teachable by praying and by fasting. You know what prayer also does? And I want you to just pause and really know what prayer also does. Because prayer also relieves, and this is a, your favorite right here, it relieves stress. <laughs> Have you ever been stressed out? It relieves anxiety, prayer. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, it speaks about, it says that those, even young people are going to get tired. Not only the elder, but the young people are going to get tired. And there's times sometimes at work that I start to daydream about going on vacation. That's when I'm like, man, I need a break. I mean, I'm daydreaming about this stuff, you know. Even young people, young men and women are going to get tired. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Oh, man, they will rise up on wings like eagles. Have you ever seen an eagle soar? The strength of an eagle? You know that an eagle can go miles without flapping one wing and then just soar. That's amazing. That's the way the Lord wants us to live soaring on wings like eagles because you're praying. I'm going to give you four points right now as to what prayer does. And I want you to write them down. And I want you to really take them to your prayer closet. Because number one, what prayer does, it, number one, it makes you wait. We have to be better waiters. Waiters. What does a server do? Have you ever worked at a, a restaurant? You know what a server does? He goes and he waits on his tables. He's just there waiting, making sure that they don't need anything. As prayer, you know what it does? It makes you wait on the presence of God. Lord, I'm here just waiting on the presence. I'm ministering to the presence of God. I'm here serving the presence of God. I'm here seeing if the Lord needs anything of me. Prayer, number one, makes you wait. Makes you wait. Make sure that you are waiting on the presence of God, that that is your favorite section of your house, the presence of God. Number two, prayer gives birth to vision. It was in prayer and fasting that he had vision to go and build that wall. Number two, prayer gives birth to vision. You don't have any vision, it's because you haven't been praying. You have small vision, it's because you have small prayer. Number three, you know what prayer does? It not only makes you wait, it not only gives birth to vision, but number three, it quiets your heart so that you're not led by emotion. We need to pray. Because in prayer, we know that we are not led by emotion. We're led by the Spirit. And when I'm praying, I know that I'm confident in the decisions that we're making because they're led by prayer. They're led by prayer. It has to do with prayer. And number four, you know what prayer does after that? It activates your faith. It sets your faith on fire. It motivates you to advance the kingdom of God. 
Prayer is everything. I had, a, I had a pastor reach out to me recently last week and said, Art, I want to meet up with you. I want to take you out to lunch. I want to know what's going on over there at Alive because I see what's taking place. And you guys just had a three-year anniversary. I've been a pastor for a lot of, uh, so many years. And I remember you leading worship at our church. But I want to know, what has the Lord shown you in three years? Tell us so we can do it here. My first question is, when's your prayer night? When's your prayer night? You don't have one of those? You don't have, what are you talking about? You don't have one of those. That's what's missing. It's not people are not missing. Prayer is missing. I don't care how many people you have. If you don't have prayer, then you don't have nothing. Prayer is so necessary. In fact, prayer is essential in leadership. If you're a leader, you will outdo yourself and outdo the rest when it comes to prayer. You're going to pray more than most people will. You're going to hold yourself accountable to a higher degree to prayer because you're a leader. And you're not going to let no one outpray you because that's how good and that's how motivated you are to be prepared for God to use you. You always are available for God to use you. You don't know when you're going to get that call. You don't know when the opportunity is going to come forward, so you must be praying. Think about an athlete working out in the gym. He's going to be there. He's a champion more than everyone else. As a leader, those are the ones that are going to be praying the most. Alan Redpath says, prayer is essential in leadership. Our vision should be so big that only through prayer God can accomplish it. Our vision should be so big that only through prayer God can accomplish it. And if prayer isn't absolutely necessary to accomplish your vision, if prayer is not absolutely necessary to accomplish your vision, then the goal is not big enough. Oh, man. If prayer is not necessary to accomplish that vision, then the goal is not big enough. We want to do things that requires prayer because that's when the goal is big enough. That we're consistent in praying. Hudson Taylor, a missionary in China, went from England to China to be able to reach people and started a revival in China, not knowing their language and culture. You know what happened? It said that for 30 years, for 40 years, I'm sorry, the sun never rose in China without the Lord finding Hudson Taylor on his knees praying for that, play, for that place. Because it was a man that prayed with consistency. Consistency is key. You're going to see here in Nehemiah that consistency is key. Consistency is key, but erosion is our constant battle. Have you ever seen something eroded? You know why it's eroded? Because it's been neglected. It becomes eroded, it becomes distasteful. It no longer is effective. The power doesn't work. Have you ever tried to start your car and it doesn't work and you find out it's because your battery is experiencing erosion and you have to go and clean it? The erosion has built up. Well now, understand this, that erosion will also stop the power of God. We should never let erosion seep into the corners of your prayer closet. Is erosion seeping into the, prayer, into the corners of your prayer closet? Understand, your ministry and your life is like a machine that needs to be maintained by the oil of prayer. Your life and your ministry is a machine that needs to be now built and maintained by the oil of prayer. And you will never lighten up the load. You will never rebuild the walls until you have first felt the pressure. You feel the pressure that Nehemiah is feeling right here, that he has to go fast? And he has to go pray. I pray that this week we would do that. 
I pray that this week would really take this seriously and say, Lord, I want to fast and I want to pray. Yes, the walls need to be rebuilt. Yes, the, it's in ruins. Yes, the situation is bad. Yes, absolutely, I know I need the Lord. But I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything until I first fast and pray. I'm not going to try to complain about my situation. I'm not going to try to speak to other people in my situation. I'm going to go and fast and I'm going to go and pray and see if the Lord not moves you to rebuild those walls that have been torn down. Never be satisfied with torn down walls. Make sure that your family, your marriage, whatever it is, our ministry, our church, are always building walls of protection. And you start with prayer. It doesn't mean that when you have your walls built up that the, the enemy is not going to attack. The enemy is for sure still going to attack. But think about how much those walls are going to separate you from the enemy. From those that are not supposed to invade that space of the presence of God. Do you have prayer and fasting in your life? You absolutely need it. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would learn what it means to wait on you. I pray that we would not make emotional decisions here. That we would not make decisions just because there's a need, start to jump at the need. Maybe walls are torn down. Maybe families, maybe children, maybe marriages, maybe even an emotional thing, a spiritual thing, you personally that you're dealing with. And you need the Lord to strengthen you, to rebuild, to restore some type of ruins that the enemy came and ripped off and broke it down. The enemy came and burned it with fire. And you need to rebuild it. It's going to start with prayer and fasting. It doesn't start with any other resource. It doesn't start with any other equation. We must be equipped with prayer and fasting. I pray that we would be spiritual people, Lord, that knows what it means to set a time aside, Lord, and be consistent in prayer. That we would not let erosion seep into the corners of our prayer closet, but that we would oil the machine of our life and of our heart with the oil of prayer. We want to be, Lord, available. We want to be ready. And we want to be willing. In Jesus' name, amen.